Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14. Please read with me the verses in bold. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him. It grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brad, and I am one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'm uh, grateful that you're with us in the, in the way that you are with us, if you're online or here in the room or out in the uh, outdoor overflow. Will you pray with me? Lord, we do ask um, that your word uh, would be a comfort uh, to those who have come seeking it. Uh, that your, Lord, your word would be uh, a challenge uh, to, to those who, who need it. And, uh, and Lord, we pray that uh, we would see your face and uh, know your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago, uh, my wife and I were awakened. It was near midnight. 
in our bed. We were awakened by one of our children. Uh, said child was standing next to mama's side of the bed because everybody goes to mama's side of the bed. The child was dazed, a little confused, and telling us uh, that they were dizzy and that their tummy hurt. This was about the time that I was aggressively awakened by my wife and encouraged to get said child to the bathroom. For the record, the bathroom is not on mama's side of the bed. So leaping out of bed and over mama, I tried to encourage and push the child around the bed and towards the bathroom. And this is the moment when said child violently vomited in the doorway and against the wall and uh, made safe passage into the bathroom completely impossible. So in alert mode, we turned and I said, go the other way, go the other way, let's go to the other bathroom. So the child turned around and again projectile vomited, thus cornering themselves and me between the wall and the bed and two lakes of puke. I literally didn't know what to do. I'd been awake for about 40 seconds. I was tired, I was frustrated, I was cranky, I was confused and honestly nauseated myself. I felt totally trapped. This is how it can feel, I think, uh, when you come, when you truly come face to face with the depravity of your own sin. Maybe you've been forced to look at the mess that you've made with your selfish pride or with your violent anger. Maybe you've uh, had your nose rubbed in it. Maybe a moment came in your life, uh, maybe a moment has come when your secret life of lust was uncovered and you were known. Or one of your darkest secrets of the past was exposed. What do you do in a moment like that, trapped? What do you do with your sin? What do you do with the guilt that you feel about what you've done to others that has come to light? What do you do with the shame that you feel about what you've done to yourself or maybe what you've done to your body? I think that there are, or that we have, two tendencies in these kinds of situations, two unhealthy responses that we fall either on one side or the other that you know we tend to slide into one lake of puke or the other first on the one hand um, to melt into self-loathing to melt into despair believing that what we have done is far beyond forgivable that we we should never be welcomed uh, by God, what we have done or by others, what we have done is too awful, too dirty, too often. On the other hand, uh, we try to just wipe it away, try to pretend like it's not that big a deal or minimize it, claim forgiveness and go on living as if maybe there is no God who cares or maybe because we think since I have Jesus, I can violate God's design and his commands 
without experiencing painful consequences. I believe that of the account that we're reading this morning, um, one of the darkest episodes in the life of King David has a lot to teach us about how someone who is seeking to live a life after God's own heart um, approaches sin. Of how someone who's seeking uh, to live a life after God's own heart approaches sin in the lives of the people that they love. How they approach sin in their own lives and hearts. And how God addresses sin in our lives and in the world. And so to do that this morning, I want to look at the passage that we read and look at three things. What Nathan did, what David did, and what God did. But before we can do that, I think we need to understand the magnitude of uh, what David has done. We, before we can appreciate uh, the, uh, the scope of what each of these did, we need to take a look back at 2 Samuel 11 to truly understand the depth of the depravity of what King David, a man after God's own heart, had done. So what has David done? Here's the cliff notes. In 2 Samuel 11, it opens, David is at the top of his game. He has established himself as king. His enemies have been subdued. Preparations are being made for building a temple for God in Jerusalem. And then suddenly, chapter 11, verse 2 tells us it happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Many, many have taught this passage as a cautionary tale about dereliction of duty. David should have been out with the army instead of cooling his jets back at home. Many have taught uh, the passage um, and, and, and seen in it a cautionary tale about avoiding temptation. What was he doing on the roof looking into people's bathrooms? Or as a tale of uh, the dangers of lust. And I think that this is all of those things. But listen to how theologian Walter Brueggemann describes the text. He says the action is quick. The verbs rush as David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There's no adornment to the action. There's no conversation. No hint of caring or affection or love. Only lust. David does not call her by name does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. And the telling verb in all of it is, he took her. This is the story of a powerful man in a powerful position, forcing his will on a woman who doesn't have a voice or an option. This is what we would call a sexual assault. She is a victim 
and he is a perpetrator. When word reaches David, and the word is, I'm pregnant, this means that the news of David's deed of her sexual assault is about to become publicly evident. Listen to what I, listen to what I copied from the website of an attorney who prosecutes organizations that cover up sexual abuse. News of sexual abuse is damaging to institutions. They may lose support and membership. They may suffer financially. And often there is reparable damage done to the institution's reputation. David is scared. Scared that he may lose support. That he may suffer financially. That he may have done irreparable damage to his own reputation. And so he does what many institutions have done. Many universities and movie studios and senators' offices and churches have done. Tries to cover his tracks. He invites her husband home from war for a conjugal visit with his wife, but Uriah, her husband, has too much integrity and too much loyalty to his comrades and really to his king to enjoy himself when his brothers are off fighting a war. And so David then conspires to have him murdered. He, in fact, hands Uriah his, his own death order and sends him back to battle. He conspires to have him murdered accidentally in battle so that he can take Bathsheba his wife, as quickly as possible and make it plausible that her pregnancy is, to use an old-fashioned word, legitimate. Poet Jackie Hill Perry says this. She says, David was trained in how to defeat enemies through his effective means. He was a man of war for decades, so it shouldn't surprise us when he utilizes those same techniques when it came to murdering Uriah. When sin has your heart, it uses your gifts too. Sexual assault, cover-up, and conspiracy to commit murder. That's speaking our language. I'll speak Old Testament for a minute. David has absolutely obliterated at least four of the Ten Commandments on face value. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not give false testimony. This is a deep lake of puke. This is despicable. This is sinister and it's scary. And just as an aside, remember, this is David. A man after God's own heart. That's what the scripture tells us. How suddenly and how drastically anyone can fall. And the minute we start to exclude ourselves from that reality, the minute we say that won't happen to me, we have actually taken one step closer to the cliff. So what do you do with this sin? What do you do if you are... If you see a friend uh, and you see the destruction that sin is having in their life, 
What do you do when you, when you recognize that sin is destroying someone that you love? Well, let's look at what Nathan did and ask the question, what does someone after God's own heart, how does someone after God's own heart approach sin in the lives of those they love? The passage we read with Sam this morning says, so the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that is a that's a super encouraging beginning. It's, it's actually the first time that God is the subject of any action in this episode. Up until this point, all the action is furiously David's. He's rushing around to get what he wants, ask, acting as if God doesn't exist. Sound familiar? God's first action in the episode is the pursuit of the sinner in love. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan understands that. Nathan has an understanding that this is God's mission, not his own. He understands himself as God's instrument and, and that his pursuit is David's heart. Not, he, he doesn't understand himself clearly from the way that he operates. He doesn't believe that he is God's hammer uh, sent to punish David's sin. Listen, as we'll learn later, God can do that on his own. Jesus echoes this understanding uh, that Nathan demonstrates in his instruction in Matthew 18, where he says, if your brother sins, particularly Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. This is the objective, to gain back a brother or a sister from the destruction that sin is causing. It's restoration. This is Nathan's mission. And so Nathan knows how much is at stake for David. He understands that uh, bringing this to light uh, has ramifications for David. So he understands that David has massive motivation to avoid and deny. He knows how dangerous a task this is for his friendship with David. If I'm the guy that calls him out, what happens to our relationship? But this is Nathan's motivation, his love for David and his love for God. So what we see is that, da that Nathan doesn't mount a full frontal assault on David. He doesn't come with the hammer, though da David deserves it. Instead, uh, we, he tells the story. Uh, some have called it a parable, but um, the text makes it clear that it wasn't clear to David that it was make-believe. And Nathan doesn't say, hey, I made up a story. He just tells him a story. And, and David is the supreme judge of the land. And so when Nathan comes and says, hey, this thing happened, um, he shares with the king as if he could do something about it. And, uh, and so he shares this scenario with the king that allows him to lead David to discover his own sin. He, he tells us the, the king this scenario uh, about a rich man who has stolen and eaten the only sheep of a poor man rather than serving lamb chops taken from his own vast flock. And David cries out in verse 5, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan says, You are that man. David 
has not only discovered, but as the king, he's, he's actually judged his own sin. This man, he says, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Three observations as we think about what Nathan did for David. First, check your motives. If you th are thinking about confronting a friend, it's easy to see sin in everybody else. It's easy, as the scripture says, to see the log in someone else's eye. It's easy to accuse and it's easy to condemn. Let me tell you, Satan does it all the time. There's a strong chance as well, given the, the two options, the two lakes of puke, uh, that your friend is already buried in their own self-loathing and self-condemnation. They're knee-deep in puke. Ask yourself, do I desire to see this person forgiven and restored? If that's my goal, then maybe I'm ready to have this conversation. Second, Seek to help them discover their sin themselves. It doesn't matter if I see it if you don't see it. It doesn't matter if you see it if they don't see it and understand it. Um, you don't have to be a master storyteller like Nathan. If you have a relationship, then sometimes all it takes is a loving friend willing to ask poignant questions. Why did you do that? What were you hoping for? Can you see what happened? Can you see who got hurt? And finally, as Nathan does, trust God. It's not up to you to convince or convict. Just be faithful. If you become convinced that the Lord is sending you to have a conversation with someone, then it's him who's in pursuit of their heart. And he is the one who changes hearts, not our clever arguments or profound confrontations. That's what Nathan did. Let's look at what David did. How does someone after God's own heart approach their own sin, the sin in their own life? In verse 13, it says that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a very simple sentence. In response uh, to David's condemnation of this hypothetical guy, when David says this guy deserves to die, that's the moment when Nathan actually gives a speech that dresses down the king. He says, you were anointed, you were delivered, you were given everything, and you despised the word of God. You've done evil. You have struck down, you have taken, you have killed. And, and after that bomb of truth, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Up until this point, the story is that David has been trying to wipe this thing under the rug, right? He has fallen in that pile of puke. He's tried to go on living as if since he's king, then he can violate guys, God's design and God's command without ramifications. His actions have assumed either that there is no God watching or that God's grace is cheap and disposable. But after uh, this speech, I'll tell you what, if it was me, if Nathan had just dressed me down like that, I probably would have uh, swung full, full pendulum into the other pile of puke and melt into a puddle of self-loathing and despair 
and believing that what I have done is beyond forgiveness. It's just too awful. It's awful. But David doesn't do either of these things. Instead, he says simply, directly, and honestly what is true. I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the thing that distinguishes David as a man after God's own heart. When Saul, his predecessor, was confronted with his sin by the prophet Samuel, Saul was, in, you can read 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15, Saul was always quick to justify his actions, long in, in the word to explain away his disobedience, and only after a, a drawn-out confrontation with Samuel that ends with Samuel telling Saul uh, that God is going to reject him and take the Holy Spirit from him, does Saul then shift over to self-pity and say, woe is me, I have sinned, with no mention of the Lord. David responds immediately and admits he's guilty. He confesses and repents. This is what to do with your sin. Hidden, unconfessed sin is a secret burden. Self-condemnation is a denial of God's ability to restore. But confession and repentance is self-abandonment and it's God-dependence. This is what I have done. You are God. This is what I will do with my sin. Last weekend, Daniel and I were at a presbytery meeting, and at these meetings, they, um, they examined candidates for ministry. We were examining a uh, candidate for campus ministry in Hawaii and asked him for his, uh, his testimony. How did you meet Jesus? He talked about a moderate exposure to church and the Bible growing up, but not a lot of knowledge. And then an impasse in his college career uh, where he didn't have words like sin, uh, uh, but he felt so burdened by the things that he had done, so uh, overwhelmed by uh, the, the havoc that uh, his decisions had caused. And he knew that this was the word that the Bible used, sin. And so this, he's, this is what he said. He said, so I Googled, what should I do with this burden of sin? And Google said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so he did. As I've said before, imagine if people did this in their marriages instead of justifying or, or explaining away, or instead of, uh, woe is me, they confessed and repented to one another. Imagine what would happen if people did this in their workplaces instead of throwing one another under the bus to climb the ladder. Imagine if people did this in politics. I made the wrong decision. Let's look at what God did. How does God address the sin in our lives and in the world? Nathan says two things on behalf of God to David. First, he says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. By God's grace 
And by grace, I mean God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything action towards us. Nathan says to David, two things are going to happen. First, he says, the Lord has put away your sin. Nathan is talking about what we might call spiritual forgiveness. God is going to do the work to reconcile David to himself, even though David has, as Nathan said, scorned the word of God. David will later write in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so uh, we're talking about David's uh, spiritual standing before the Lord, and he is told by Nathan that uh, God is going to put away your sin. And this is going to cost God something, and it's not cheap. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second thing that Nathan says is that he says, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Remember, David pronounced the correct judgment according to the law. As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. But God promises to David that he will set aside the requirement of the law. And the law requires that murderers and adulterers be put to death. He says, you shall not die. David's life is spared and his kingdom is not taken from him. Profound to think about the connection between Saul's response and what happens to his life and his kingdom and David's response and what happens to his life and his kingdom. Friends, this is always God's response to those who confess their sin and repent. He promises that if that is what we do with our sin, we will be forgiven and ultimately will not see death that we deserve. Now, spiritual forgiveness is amazing. And being released from the consequences of the law is a second chance that not all will get. But this is also the scripture, uh, and the scripture is not telling a fairy tale. It's significant to realize the painful and lasting consequences of David's actions. Even though the scripture says his sin is forgiven, verse 14 goes on to say, and Nathan says to him, nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Forgiven sin, uh, while God pays consequences for eternity, still has real-world consequences for today. Not only does the baby that Bathsheba carries ultimately die, but David has introduced into his family tree and the history of his family a theme of sexual sin and violence that uh, will plague his family and his kingdom for the rest of his life. Sometimes the most loving thing that we can do for someone is to not protect them from the consequences of their actions. Sometimes this is the way that God works in someone's life to bring us to a place of confession and repentance. And I think that should be of some encouragement 
to victims of sexual abuse. Telling your story and pursuing justice for a perpetrator is not contradictory to hoping that they find forgiveness in Christ. It may, in fact, be the only language that some abusers will understand. It may, in fact, the consequences of sin may, in fact, be the only language that can soften some hearts hardened by such depravity. It may be that telling your story could be a gift from God to them and to others who hear it. God, one writer says, God forgives sin with such great grace and at such a great price. Such love should motivate us to flee from sin and pursue righteousness. But, as 1 Timothy 5.20 says, if love doesn't motivate us, then the consequences of sin might. You could say that this is something of a theme of King David's reign for the rest of the story. That while in many ways he is a better king than any that came before him or after him, he still ultimately can't fulfill the need that God's people have for a good and righteous and just king. He still can't, uh, his, his response to sin points us towards God's heart and what it looks like to be a sinner in pursuit of forgiveness. But the heinousness of his sin reminds us that we need a better king. We need a better king. Jesus, the son of David, we're told, had nothing that he needed to cover up. No secrets, no no skeletons in the closet, no sin. He had ultimate power. We're told that ultimately he had power over even death, and yet he never abused power. The daughters of Israel were safe in his presence. And yet it was God's plan that the sin that he removed from David, the sin that he removes from us, the consequences of the law that we deserve, that he would set those on Jesus. He set those on Christ as he died on the cross on our behalf. David cried out in our passage today, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The woman who has done this deserves to die. And Christ took what we deserve and died. Died in our place so that God could set aside the consequences of the law and reconcile us, offer us spiritual forgiveness, and even give us uh, the grace that we need to endure uh, the consequences of our actions in a way that is for our good, that makes us and others more like Christ. My friends, what should we do with this burden of sin? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God has done to set aside the consequences of our sins. 